Turn in your scriptures to Psalm chapter 24. We're going to be talking about the generation that seeks the Lord. We're going to be talking about how this generation seeks the Lord, desiring to honor Christ and exalt his glory, and realizing that that is our greatest treasure. There's no higher treasure than glorifying God. Heavenly Father, we pray now that the name of Jesus would be exalted here today. We pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted up and, and honored above all else so that our greatest treasure would be your highest honor. We thank you, God. Speak through me, your servant. I pray that I'd have clear and crisp words. I pray that I would have things that to say that are honoring to you and beneficial to those who listen. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you Psalm chapter 24, 10 very powerful verses. Psalm 24, 1, a psalm of David, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. There's a generation that seeks the Lord. There's a generation that has a passionate desire to seek his face. There is a generation that God is calling forth, I believe in this hour, to overcome all these other things that uh, the world has to offer. Many are seeking God for his material benefit called the prosperity movement. But it's more subtle than that even. It, 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 it is one who benefits, who's trying to benefit by seeking God to ensure certain things for their own self rather than for the glory and honor of God. They may be saying, I want to seek his face in order that I might get uh, personal or family well-being or ministry success, or I'll seek the Lord because I think it might ensure me uh, significance and honor and my own self-esteem. There's many ways we could try to seek the Lord, but there's one thing that the Bible is encouraging us here in Psalm 24 is to seek the Lord, to seek his face for the benefit of his face, for no other benefit, to love him because he's lovable, to, to honor him because he is honorable, to give him value and worth because he is worthy of all of our praise. There is a, there's a debate about uh, between seeking the Lord's face and seeking his hand. Some people say, don't seek the Lord's hand, but seek his face. And the others say, seek his face only and don't worry about his hand. That will come. Uh, the, the, that'll be the other that will come when you seek his face first. But I, I want to say to you, these things are inseparable. Uh, God, God is one. You cannot seek his face without seeking his hand. You can't seek his hand without seeking his face. But there is a priority to this. In this analogy, the hand is the works of God, what he does for you, how he blesses you, how he benefits you, how he moves in the supernatural. These things we want to 
seek and pursue, but it's always important to remember. It's vital to remember we are called to seek his face first. He is looking for a generation that seeks him. Verse 6 says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face, who seek the face, who seek the face. I try to burn that into my consciousness and my memory. It's, it's what God calls me to, to seek his face, to know him. I, I, I don't mind seeking his hand. I want to see his power. I want to see his miraculous works. I want to see his benefits and his blessings, but I want him first, and then all these other things shall be added unto it. We find this in the story that Jesus told of two women that were dear to him, Mary and Martha. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 41. We don't have to take time to turn there today, but we see the story, and it's well known in the church. If you've been in church, you've heard the story before, how Martha, the sister of Mary, the older sister, was preparing the, the, the plates and the tables and the food and the cleaning house, making sure that Jesus and those who came to sit at the table would be uh, be, would be blessed by what was presented there that day, but she was distracted. And while at the same time, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. So you can see here that Mary is taking on what Psalm 24, 6 says. She was part of the generation that seeks the Lord, that seeks his face. While it says in verse 40 of Luke 10, Martha was distracted with much serving. Now, serving's not wrong. Uh, there is a time and place for that. But being distracted by something when we are meant to be enticed and enchanted, so to speak, by something greater is something that will throw us off from what God, God's highest good for us. And for Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet, there would be a time where she would need to arise and, and, and work and be diligent and faithful about things that needed to be done in her household and for her family and for her friends and for her neighborhood and for the synagogue. But when it comes to the presence of Jesus, it's time to sit. The result of Martha's distraction, it says in the next verse, was that she was anxious and troubled over many things. Uh, I find many people, and some of you listening to me today might be finding yourself in this very same place. You are anxious and you don't know why. You're troubled about many things. You, you're remunerating things over and over again in your mind. You have sleepless nights where you're unable to say uh, to yourself, let my soul rest. Why? Because you're anxious about many things. Why, is, why are you anxious? Well, there's something behind that anxiousness. It's this being distracted. It's being distracted by things of this world, money, riches, fame, fortune, success, uh, health, good, uh, good, uh, a good well-being to your, to your uh, emotional life. All those things are good, but we can be distracted from them when we have a higher calling to take place first. And when we're distracted to the point where we no longer are seeking the face of the Lord, what we end up with in that distracted spirit is this anxiousness and a troubled soul. And it says here, over many things. It's not just one thing. It's not just the dishes aren't done. It's not just the bills aren't paid. It's not just the we didn't get the kids to school on time. It's, 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 a, it's overall, it's a whole lifestyle of being distracted. You see this in people, don't you? You see them harried and, and worried and anxious and stressed and always, uh, the end of that, result of that is oftentimes a, an anger or a shortness, um, a, a crankiness. You, you see these things take place and all of this comes, as I'm saying here today, is being distracted from this one thing calling. And I wanna invite you once again to be a part of the generation that seeks the Lord, that seeks his face. The benefit we have from that is 
in itself, just knowing him, but a subsidiary benefit from this is it moves us from a distracted spirit and a soul that's troubled and anxious over many things. Psalms 24, the whole text reveals what this generation of seekers is looking for. What is it about his face that that blesses us? You see this in marriage, ask a spouse, what is it in the other person's face? Oh, it's her eyes. Oh, it's, it's, the, it's the jaw, the strength. Uh, there are many things about the face that are attractive, attractive to us. And we see three things in Psalm 24. And this is the, the key to this text. If you want to live uh, a life that magnifies Christ's highest glory so that you can find your life's greatest treasure, you're going to want to seek the face of the Lord in order, to, uh, in a way that these three things are dominant in your life. Let me mention them, and then we'll take a uh, a time to go over all three of them. The first one of these things that uh, a generation of seekers is looking for is the dominion of Christ. The second thing is the worthiness of Christ. And the third thing is the glory of Christ. The dominion of Christ speaks to his reign, his supremacy, his preeminence, him being first over all things. It's the dominance. The kingdom of God is dominant. That's found in verses one through one and two. The, the, the worthiness of Christ is the exaltation or the eminence of Christ's worthiness, the putting him above all else, that, that he is the only one, he is the only worthy one. And the third thing then is the glory of Christ, which is the worship of his unique glory. He has a glory like none other, an incomparable glory, an infinite glory, as, as opposed to all the finite glories we see around us. These three things, the seekers of the Lord's face in this generation will seek diligently, faithfully, wholeheartedly, determinedly, and without reservation, putting these things first in our life. Let's take a look at these. First one is the dominion of Christ or the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ. Ephesians 3.11 says this, uh, speaking of Christ's rule and reign in the church and over all things says this thing, this, this preeminence of Christ, this supremacy of, supremacy of Christ, this dominance of Christ, this dominion of Christ over all things, heaven and earth uh, formed and everything, everything, everything is, is found here. And it says this was according to the eternal purpose. This is called the eternal purpose of God in that he realized this in Christ Jesus. God's eternal purpose is realized, interesting, in Christ Jesus. Your purpose, an athlete's purpose, might be realized in making the, the, the professional team. A, an Olympian's eternal purpose is, is, is to make the, the, the Olympic team. The businessman may have a, a purpose, a highest purpose of being, uh, I want to reach a, you know, $100 million, whatever it might be. And so each of us have our own eternal purpose, our own primary purpose, the, own, the thing that drives us more than anything else, the, the thing that we wake up with an excitement in our soul for. And many of us hear a lot of sermons about your purpose. We, we see this, it's, it's prevalent in the church today. We're going to help you meet your destiny. We're going to help you find your purpose. Good for that church and good for the people that hear it. But it's secondary. What is more important that we understand is not our own purpose, 
But what we understand more importantly is that we understand God's eternal purpose. If we are submitted to Christ, if we are under his rule and reign, would I not be right to say that our purpose should be God's purpose or that God's purpose should be our purpose? What is his desire, what is dominant in his life to see unfold in the world today should be our greatest purpose. So here it is, Ephesians 3.11 that that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. You cannot realize your purpose unless it's under God's purpose, and, and it cannot be realized in God's purpose and your purpose unless it's realized in Christ Jesus, in the seeking of his face. So Psalm 24 awakens us to this. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's not just that he owns property called earth. It's not just that he owns trees and rivers, but the fullness thereof. The fullness, in other words, it's the things that are going on, the children that are being born, the marriages that are taking place, the people breathing their last on the deathbed, the conflicts between nations, the peace treaties being made, the the flow of, of uh, future events, all of these things are the Lord's. And not just in portion. He doesn't own just some rivers or some trees or some people or some nations. It's the fullness of all these things that belong to Christ Jesus. It is his. The earth is the Lord's. It's not the devil. Yes, he reigns over the powers. He's the prince of the power of the air, but a prince is under someone. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of the lords. This is the ruler of all things. And those who seek the face of the Lord will seek his dominion, seek his authority, would align themselves to God's eternal purpose, saying, I want to see Christ exalted over all things. I want to see Christ come first place over all things. I want to for the world to know the knowledge of the glory of God. It goes on to say, the world and all who dwell therein. If it says here, the earth is the Lord, and saying, all who dwell therein are the Lord's. Every person ever created from Adam to the last days of the earth will be people that are that, that belong to the Lord. Now, not all of them will be saved. Those who God calls upon and he chooses the elect of the Lord who respond in faith will be those who, who live forever with the Lord, but it doesn't mean... There are some people who belong to the Lord and some not. He owns all things. He rules and reigns over all things. And no one is outside of the boundaries of his dominion, power, and authority. Why? Verse 2 says, For he has founded it upon the sea, speaking of the earth and all that dwells within it. He founded it upon the, the waters that he created. This goes back to Genesis chapter 1, where he's speaking of the creation, that he first created the waters, then he began to divide that by putting things upon the watery earth. And we see here that he established it upon the river. So he founded it, and he established it, and that has not changed. He founded all things. All these things that we just mentioned, the earth that's the Lord, the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell them, he founded them, and he established them. He established and founded you and I. He established and founded our families. He established and founded our churches. He established and founded our nations. He established and founded revivals. He established and founded spiritual awakenings. These are the workings of the Lord. We cannot do them in ourselves. And therefore, all glory and honor go to the dominion, supremacy, and the preeminence of Christ Jesus. Now, here's the eternal purpose of God. 
sort of uh, worked out in a little bit more detail in Hebrews chapter 2. If you're tuning in and listening to this and you have your Bibles available to you, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, verse 5. Now, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, the angels are very powerful, more powerful beings than us. Angels in the Old Testament could destroy hundreds of thousands of soldiers with, with, a, uh, with a single swipe of an of a angel's wing, so to speak. Uh, so they had more power than us. They, they had access to, the, to, to, to heaven itself, to see God, to, to, to see Christ. Uh, and, and yet he didn't subject the world to, which was to come to them uh, because it was testified somewhere, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. This is from Psalm chapter 8. If you haven't watched that uh, teaching yet, it's, it's found in one of our earlier teachings on the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. You've crowned him with glory and honor. This is the dominion of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything under subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, some teachers will teach this and say, he's speaking about Adam and the children of Adam. He's speaking about humanity, that he put us a little lower. And I can understand why they're saying that, because they don't want to see Christ as being put under the angels. But this is not speaking of the divinity of Christ. It's speaking of the humanity of Christ. Now, in the hypostatic union, Christ, his body, Christ, his flesh, Christ, the man, and Christ, the divine uh, God, part of the Trinity himself, are one. They're unified. But there's also uh, a fully man and a fully God. And so fully God coming in the form of earth would not be put under angels. But the fully man in his humbling himself, as Philippians tells us, would be under that. And so some would say, well, no, that's not Jesus. This is talking about man. Why I disagree with that, I think, is very clear from the Bible. And they disagree with that because it says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything subjected to him. And so what they're saying is since God, in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, all things are under subjection to him. And this verse is saying it's not in subjection to him, not all things. And therefore, this must be man, not Jesus. The problem we have with that is found in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Can't get around it. This text is talking about Jesus. And when it says all things are under his subjection to him, yet we're not seeing all things subjected. What that means is he has full dominion, full authority, full preeminence. He is first over all things. And yet there are things out of his dominion and and preeminence that he is allowing to be in control of a different source, not fully in control, but almost a delegated control outside of the, the perfections that he will one day find after even death is defeated. Chapter 2 of Hebrews goes on to say that we won't read there. But it goes on to say that that uh, it, not everything is yet in subjection to him. And the text is that he's going to defeat any every enemy and we will see all things brought into subjection to him. And then what Jesus is going to do is turn it over to his father saying, Father, I've subjected everything under my feet. I've won every victory. Every battle is now completely finished. And I bring the kingdoms over to you that have been won. Doesn't mean God's not sovereign over all these things, but he is sovereignly conducting his business in such a way that things will become submitted to him. Even though in some ways they are submitted to him, there are other ways that he's bringing submission to a completion, a perfection, and that's bring, bringing where uh, death being the final uh, thing that he defeats. But it, do, it doesn't mean that it's outside of his dominion. Uh, in matter of fact, it says in the previous 
in the text we just read, he left nothing outside of his control. He left nothing outside of his control. So he's still in control. God is in control. You'll hear people teach that. It's taught oftentimes in many of the charismatic churches. It's taught uh, Christ is sovereign, but he's not in control of everything. Satan is in control of some things. No, Jesus is in control of everything. Certain things are delegated to uh, authorities and powers and principalities that that are conducting their life and business and rule and reign in certain ways that are contrary to the desires of God's heart. But God is winning these victories, and He's still in control. And at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. Uh, but I love this verse nine. But we see Him. You see, we're not just looking for control. We're not just looking for sovereignty. Although those are elements that I could not speak any higher of. They are glorious and grand and to be valued and to be honored. This is who Jesus is. But but we're not just seeing doctrines. We're not just seeing elements. We're not just seeing battles won and lost. No, we're see. but we see him. We see Jesus. This is the, the, the dominion of Christ. This is the seeking the face of Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned, even though he was made a little lower for a short season, 33 years in life. But now we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering, so that by grace of the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, there's Psalm chapter 24 again, in bringing many sons to the glory should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. He, he completed his tasks perfectly, and this was the perfection of the Son, Christ Jesus, that gave him dominion and authority over all things. One other passage of Scripture I would love for you to turn to with me is found in the book of Colossians. Colossians, um, if you turn there, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to read verses 15 through 20. Oh, this is so glorious. So glorious. I hope you'll give heed to these words. This is, this is the pinnacle of seeking the face of Christ right here in these five verses. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen God in all his attributes, in all his glory, all his splendor, all his worth, all his value. He is the firstborn of all creation. In other words, he's above all creation. He created all things, but he is above all things. For, look at this, by him. How did all this happen? It was by Jesus. All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or, or authorities. All things were created, we just read, by, by him. And then now it says, created through him. He was the source that was creating these things. And these last few words, and for him, by him, through him, and then for him. Everything that we just read in Psalm 24 there, these things created the earth the fullness thereof, the world, and all who dwell therein were created for him. He is the only one worthy of, of the glory of God, the, 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 the worship that we should give to him, to the exaltation is found in the fact that these things, and ourselves included, our church included, our family included, our children included, all these things were for him. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name is what the Old Testament tells us. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If he weren't, if he weren't holding all things together by the word of his power, things would not blow up like a nuclear explosion. They would uh, 
disseminate. They would just fall. They, they would cease to exist. There, I don't think there'd be an explosion or, or you wouldn't see things fall apart. It just would no longer be. He's holding every molecule together and the accumulation of everything that we know in our created existence. He's holding it all together by the word of his power. That talks about the dominion of Christ. Someone like that, uh, a, a divine entity like that, could there be anything outside of his power, of his ability, of his strength? It gives us faith and confidence and the all-encompassing power of God. Uh, verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, that he, that in everything, I love that, repeat that one more time, can I? That in everything he might be preeminent. Some, some passages of Scripture say uh, that he might come to have first place. I like this translation better, preeminent, eminent over all things. First place speaks of an order. Um, the world's here, people are here, godly people are here, and then over all those, then there's angels, and then, then there's God, there's Jesus at, at top. Preeminent to me is, is something different. It's, it's not only Hebrews we just read from, speaks of the better covenant and Jesus better than Moses. And better is a great word. It's a biblical word. We trust it and honor it. And yet there's something about God that is not just better, or not just above, but that is other, other than. It's completely different. It's a, it's of a different sort. It's, 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 it's one of these things not being like the other. It, it certainly is better. It certainly is above. It's certainly preeminent over all these things. It certainly is first place. But not only that, it is other. It is other than. So maybe a silly way to illustrate this. It's, it, illustrations always fall far short. But if, if there was a baseball pitcher who, who pitched a no hitter? Uh, you would say that that is a that that is a preeminent uh, game that he played, or or man, that's that was that was top of the line. That was above. That was better than most games. And then above a, a no hitter, where no batter gets on a base from a hit, there's what's called a perfect game, which is no. Uh, no uh, hits in, from out know, into the field and no walking somebody where you, if you throw four uh, balls outside of the strike zone, the runner gets to go to first. And, and if you can keep from that happening, it would be called a perfect game. And so a perfect game is better and a perfect game is above. But let me stretch our imagination. What if there was a player in history one time that every game he pitched, 30 games a year over 10 seasons, 300 games, not only were they... Uh, uh, no hitters, but 30 perfect games. You would say, well, that's unimaginable. That's, that, that's other. That's not even above. That's in a scale all to itself. Uh, and if they pitched all perfect games, but, but, but what if there was somebody who, in, in a unique way to illustrate this, they, 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 there was some kind of divine pitcher that took every game and played every game and played it perfectly, and won every game, and, and pitched every game without a hit, without, and not only without a walk, a perfect game, a no-hitter, but also every pitch was a strike. Every pitch was exactly the way it was. Every pitch couldn't even be seen by the batter. You would go like, nah. Now, again, I know that illustration is, is weird, but, but do you get my drift here? Do you get the picture of this? It would, be, it would be supernatural. It would be so far above reality that it could not even be measured in the reality of a baseball game. And that's the otherness of the dominion and the supremacy, the preeminence, the otherness of Christ. 
He is better and he is above, but those words pale in comparison to the reality of how far better and how far above because he is other than that is the preeminence of Christ. And that is what I'm calling you today to do, to seek this kind of face in the supremacy of Christ, to align yourself with the, the, the eternal purpose of God that is found in his son, Christ Jesus, that he would come to have supremacy over all things. And Christ wants to win the supremacy of your heart, of your family, of your church, of, of your city, that he would come to have first place in all things. There is nothing compares no desire we have, no ambition we have. It's Jesus. It's Jesus first. It's Jesus foremost. It's Jesus above. It's Jesus preeminent. It's Jesus other than anything else that might even try to compare to him. The second thing we see is the worthiness of Christ. Let's go back to Psalm. We read from verse 1 and 2. Verse 3 here says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? As I read this, I have read this many times, asking myself the question, how can I achieve these things? Or how can any man? Because we want to find these things. We want to ascend to the hill of the Lord. What kind of person or who shall stand in the holy place? Who's capable of this kind of holiness? Who's capable of ascending into the very presence of God where he is not willing to look upon any sin? Who's so perfect? Who's so worthy to go up into his presence, into the holy of holies, even if you will? It says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessings of the Lord and the righteousness from God of his, of his salvation. And again, here we are, we're asking these questions. Lord, how can I get clean enough hands? How can I have a pure enough heart to come into your presence? How do I avoid lifting up my soul? In other words, putting priority to, uh, rather than the preeminence of Christ, lifting up my soul to what is false, to what is not truly preeminent. It's false. It's not really to be valued the way I'm valuing it. How can I can clean my hands from that? How can I clean my heart from that? And how do I not swear deceitfully? It doesn't mean you go around using curse words, but but you're swearing on things that are of deceit. You're saying, this is preeminent. This is worth giving your life to. This is what your greatest value is. You're, 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 you're giving your honor. You're putting placing an oath upon things that have no value or lesser value for certain. And so we ask the question, who can do this? Who can stand? Who can ascend? Who has clean hands? Who can lift, not lift up their soul? Who can not place priorities? And we try to find examples in Scripture. We go to Hebrews 11. It's called the heroes of faith. And we see their stories of, of people we look to and say, does that one, did Adam have clean hands and a pure heart? Did he not lift up his soul to another? Maybe we can emulate Adam and be, and no, but Adam fell and and he gave us all, unfortunately now, the sin nature that is in us through one man. The whole earth now is bound up in sin. It's not Adam. Well, well, well then maybe it's Enoch. He walked with God and was taken up. But no, we don't. Enoch was not a perfect man. He, he couldn't say, I had perfectly clean hands or a pure heart. Uh, well, maybe it, was, maybe it was Abraham, a friend of God. Well, he was a friend of God, but yet a sinner. So he could not say, I, I have the hands and I have the heart to ascend to the Lord. On and on we could go through Noah. Uh, chosen by God as a righteous man. Uh, you see, on on Abraham, David, a man with heart after own uh, heart after God. None of these are worthy. None of these are worthy. Only Jesus is worthy. None none 
can ascend in their own strength. None can stand before a holy God. None can claim clean hands. None can claim a pure heart. Romans tells us there are none righteous. No, not one. There are none holy. We are all wicked. We are all filled with sin. And we don't deserve to go into the ascension to the holy hill. We don't deserve to not only to ascend to get there, but then to stand in that place because we don't have clean hands and we don't in ourselves have a pure heart. I believe with all my heart this is speaking of one. There's only one worthy. There's only one truly able to cap capably say and fully say and clearly say to all these, these verses here, these three verses, yes, yes, yes. Jesus can say, I am one who can ascend to the hill. I am one who can stand in the holy place. Jesus can say, I am the one who has clean hands. Jesus can say, I'm the one with a pure heart. Jesus wants to say, I will never lift my soul to what is false. Jesus can say, I never dece uh, swear deceitfully. Jesus alone is worthy. How precious is that song? It's being sung in the church today. Is there anyone worthy? There's none worthy but Jesus. Who can ascend? None but Jesus. None but Jesus. Oh, my friends, we need to trust in him. We need to come to him. It is only Jesus. The, the, there's none righteous but him. And thankfully, it, it doesn't now exclude us saying, oh, well, it's only Jesus, and he's the only one worthy to ascend, so we're going to be down here. We'll never ascend. We'll never be clean. We'll never be holy. No, we, we are grafted into the righteousness and holiness of Christ by his cleansing blood. He washed us. He cleans us. It was a once and for all time sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice daily, and then the high priest in the Holy of Holies once a year, and it never made their consciences clean. But now Jesus has washed us, and even not only our sins that our bodies have committed, but our consciousness of our mind is made clean, made holy, made pure. And now you can say, as, as Jesus said in Hebrews, I and the children who are with me, we will trust in the Lord. We're trusting that we're brought, being brought up in Christ Jesus to be seated with him in heavenly places. Glory to God. We have access to the Father because Jesus invites us to come with him through the blood of his righteousness into the holy of holies and, and, and to be seated with him in heavenly places and to receive the glory of God, the presence of God in our life and he cleans our hands every thing you've done that's been unclean he cleans your hands the pureness of heart is won by the cross of jesus by the victory that he won for us on the cross you have a pure heart now and now he gives you the righteousness imputed so that you're not lifting up your soul to something that is not of full value and worth that is only found in the Son, Christ Jesus. You're not lifting up your soul to other gods, to other idols, and you're not swearing by these things, deceitfully saying these, these are sufficient or I can live by these things. No, there's something more. There's something more that you're finding and you're now you're just lifting up your soul. And this lifting up your soul is, is gonna be found in the next thing we say here in just a moment. But but it's important to, to look at that words, those two words there, to lift up. What do you lift up? What do you exalt? And the question we're asking today is, are you part of this generation that's seeking the face of the Lord to lift up the worthiness of Christ, that there is none worthy? Is there anyone worthy? None worthy except Jesus Christ. The third thing we want to talk about today is found also in this text. It's the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ. We see the preeminence or the, the dominion of Christ. We see the worthiness of Christ. And lastly, we see the glory of Christ. A seeker of Christ's face is one who seeks the glory of of Christ because there is none other worthy. Others have lifted up their soul to other things. But look at this now, through the work of Jesus Christ, 
In verse 7, it starts off by the exact same words that we found in verse 4 in a negative format, lifting up your soul to what is false. And now the same Hebrew word is lift up, but now it's something else, lift up your heads. In other words, look to something else. Seek you, Let your face seek something else. You, your soul was lifted up to something unworthy, without value. And now turn around and, and because of what Jesus has done for you and what he's brought you into, that clean hands and the pure heart, now you can come up to a person and says, I'm going to lift up my heads. And, and, and he's speaking personally, I believe here, but also of a city or a church or a people group. Lift up your heads, O gates. It's, 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 uh, it's not just lifting up your soul. It's not just lifting up your heart, but it's lifting up everything, every gate of your life, every, every place that has been blocked at once, everything that has, has had a, a, a division between you and Christ, every place without access to being clean and pure, every place that is, that's lifted up to certain other things. Now lift up everything, every gate in your life so that Christ has everything. He is in complete uh, preeminence, not only over all things, but in your life. He has won the victory of everything in your life. Lift up your heads, O gates. And then he uses the phrase again, and be lifted up. He uses this now a third time in this passage, two times now in the positive sense. Once lift up your heads, O gates, now and be lifted up. And he says, O ancient doors. What's the difference between the gates and the ancient doors? Well, metaphorically speaking here about old things in our life that we've not given up, old patterns of sin that have clung to us, and we've just not been able to lift them up to a place where we have the ascending to the holy hill by clean hands and a pure heart. We're still holding on to certain things that we've lifted up to that are false. And so it's saying, not only lift up your heads, O gates, the openness of our life to Christ, but it's speaking of opening up ancient doors, things in our past, our, and not just our past sins, but our past hurts and wounds and brokenness, our past experiences that cause us to have regrets and remorse and, and fearful events because this happened to me before, maybe it'll happen again. And so it's saying here, this, this is a vast and wide invitation. Be lifted up, ancient doors. All these old things can be healed. I believe counseling is good, but maybe we won't need years of therapy if we can lift up these ancient doors in our heart and find that Christ and his exaltation is the healing, cleansing, blood-bought power to redeem us from all of our past and heal us wholly, fully, that we might then lift up the King of glory. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Oh, don't you want that in your life? Come in, Lord Jesus. Come into my life. Come into my family. Come into my thoughts. Come into my behavior. Come into my will. Come into my desires. Come into my passions. Come into every aspect of my life. Let there be no gate. Let there be no ancient doors resisting at all. Let the King of glory come in. I want all of Jesus for all of my life. And verse 8 says, who is this King of glory? Important question. Who, who is the King of glory to you and your life? Now, we may want to easily answer that, particularly as a Christian. Well, obviously, it's God. It's obviously, it's Jesus. But, but are there other things that you place above God? And, and so it's saying here, there's, there's this King of glory. And then it begins to describe some of the attributes of God. When we want to know God, we always look to his attributes, and that's what the psalm here does. The Lord, strong and mighty, 
The omnipotence is the attribute here being spoken of. The omnipotence of God is that he's strong and that he's mighty. There's nothing as strong as the Lord. There's, there's again, it's an incomparable. Everything else is finite. There's a finite amount of strength on the earth. And if you combine the strength of every army ever assembled and every weapon they've ever assembled together, you put all that together, and that is a finite amount of strength. And it can't compare. It's incomparable to the Lord's strength because it is infinite. Every, um, every molecule of strength and might ever created is it was formed and fashioned by Jesus himself as he spoke them into existence and holds them together, um, but they are minuscule compared to the power. He released certain amounts of power in a physical, inf finite realm, but his power is infinite. In other words, it's measureless. If you measure the most power your mind could ever phantom, that you're measuring it. And so you have to go beyond that. And it, 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 is, it is endless from beginning to end because there is no beginning and there is no end. He's strong and mighty. And then it goes on to say, the Lord mighty in battle. This is worth a hallelujah right here, I believe with all my heart, because it's one thing to be strong and mighty, but it's another thing to be strong and mighty in battle. Uh, a lot of strong people never go to battle. A lot of mighty armies never go to fight. It's one thing to be strong, but it's another thing to be mighty in battle. You can be a, a, a bodybuilder, a weightlifter, and, and then get into the boxing ring with one or two punches knocked out. And this is not what we're talking about, who is this king of glory. He is, he has infinite strength and infinite might, but he also has infinite ability in battle. There is no battle that he will not win. There is no contest. There is no conflict when it comes to what God can do. And he can do that for you today. Whatever you're facing, whatever sources seem to be aligning themselves against you, whatever ways you are surrounded, they are insignificant because they are finite. And God's might in battle is infinite. And that is an incomparable. It's, a, it's, it's an unfair conflict because Christ reigns over all those things. 9 and 10, repeat it. Self again, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Why, why does it repeat itself? Well, I believe it wants to emphasize it. Scripture does this oftentimes. The most emphasized word is the, is the, 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 the three times used, holy, 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 overemphasizing, so to speak. You can't overemphasize holiness, but the, 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 the wanting to put weight on the, the sense of this. And, and so it's repeated because it wants to show the, the, the significance of this. The only difference then is in verse 10, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. And what, what is this word host? It's not a word we use, or if we use it, we use it differently. We use it as uh, he's hosting a party or he's the host of this event. Uh, this is not what this passage of scripture is talking about. Host, there, there are several hosts mentioned in scripture. There's an angelic host. There's the fallen angels, the, the demonic host of the realm. There's the host of men and their armies. Various hosts, part of the finite creation. And I love this. It says, the Lord, he's the Lord of hosts. He's over all the hosts. He's over the host of the angels. He's over the host of fallen angels. They are not outside of his power. He can, he can at, in an instant, destroy everything that they are and everything that they are doing. He's the Lord over all these things. He's the Lord over all human humanity, the, whether it be armies or politicians or governments, state, national, global, the UN. The, he's the Lord over all of them. Nothing is outside of his control. Everything is being brought under. Even death will one day find its 
ultimate victory in him. He is, hallelujah, he is the king of glory. Church, he is the king of glory, and we are called to honor him. We are called to exalt him. We are called to join with the heavenly host in giving praise and acclamation to him and him alone who sits on the throne. Who is this king of glory? He, Christ Jesus, is the king of glory, and there is no one worthy of the glory but him, no one worthy of the honor but him, no one worthy of the preeminence of him, no one else could, could say that I have the Father's eternal purpose in mind when he comes to see me come to be preeminent and supreme over all things. The glory of Christ is breathtaking. It is stunning. It is beautiful. It is overwhelmingly, it is, it is the overwhelming weightiness of his presence in our life. And I want to close by this saying, we were created for this glory. We were created to join with the Father and having an agenda, a purpose of seeing Christ exalted and glorified over all things in our life. This We were hardwired for this. When you see fireworks, and I love fireworks, when you see fireworks and they shoot off and you hear the boom and the lights uh, flickering through the, the night sky, you just, it's, it's a man-made finite, uh, minuscule example of the splendor of the light and glory that's found in God. But when it, when your heart is, is wooed and wowed by those things, it's a small sample of the fullness of the glory of God. And there are thun sunsets and thunderstorms. And when babies are born and you hold them as a father or mother for the first time, when you're standing there at the altar and you're, you're saying, uh, I do to your spouse, or when you're a father, in my case, getting to marry your sons and daughters to other, uh, to, to their spouses and, and you're fighting back the tears. Those are moments of taste and foretaste of glory, uh, of sunsets, of, of, of songs that you might hear song of symphonies being played, of, of, of the sweetness of a, of a goodnight kiss from your spouse. These are all forms of glory. And you and I were created to, to exalt in the glory of God. You know, animals are, are unlike us in many ways. They don't have a conscious like we have. They don't have eternity they, like we have. And one of the things they don't have is hardwired in them is this desire for glory. And so you'll never see an animal turn and look at fireworks. They usually run from the sound. You never you never see them exalting over a, a four-course meal. If there's a steak thrown, they'll gobble it as much as dry dog food. They, 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 they don't look at sunsets they, they, when you bring a baby home, they don't necessarily oogle, ogle over them. They, they just see that as another person they want to wag their tail at. They're different, aren't they? Animals, dogs, and, and other animals. You are uniquely created. The, the earth is the Lord and the fullness and all those who dwell within, all of us who dwell within are meant to be part of this generation of those who seek his face. Some rebel, some turn, but I want to ask you the question, are you willing to be part of the generation who seek him, who seek his face? And will you give your life to the supremacy of Christ, to the worthiness of Christ, and to the glory of Christ? This is the only way to live a life that has the, the greatest treasures or that are found that are living out of the, 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 the pearl of great price has been purchased now. You, you, the, the fields mean nothing because you've earned this, this you've, you've been given this one great precious pearl of great price. So I, I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you would become part of this generation, this last day's generation. There have been many generations 
We, we, we see it in the Old Testament. The, the, the Noah and his sons were part of their generation. And Abraham had a generation. And David had a generation. And, and the New Testament church was a great generation. But I believe we are in a holy generation. I believe we are in the last day's generation. And God wants to do something to return us and to captivate our hearts to these things that are found in this psalm that we might glorify him, that we might see him as preeminent over all things, that we might treasure him above all things. This is what Christ is calling this generation to do. And I want to invite you to join, to have no other God worthy of serving. If you do, you're just going to find yourself miserable. You're going to find yourself like Martha, anxious. Keep Christ above all things in your life. Treasure him. Receive your pleasure from him. You don't need any things that cause addictions, these worldly things. You need the things that 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 are free, that are available, that are life-giving. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus mm, that we would have this heart after you. That And God, I, I'm not supposing that my hands are so clean and my heart so pure that I could just simply decide to be part of a generation that sees you with such fervency, honors you with such diligency, that, that treasures you with such abandonment. Uh, I don't presume to be that man. And, and those I'm praying for, Lord, I believe they could agree with me. We, in our own strength, have never been able to live up to ascend to that. So we're asking for mercy. And we're asking for grace. We're asking for an invitation that says that we would come through the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ to be resurrected with him as a new creation now with clean hands and a pure heart, able now to ascend to these higher things, not lifting up our soul to these things that are, are unworthy of our life's treasure and our heart's desire and our face to seek, or, or that we would seek those things with our face. God, you, you are above all and better than all and other than all. And we want to treasure you and we want to seek you. And we thank you, God, that we can't do this in our own strength because we would boast then. And we give thanks for our weakness because in our weakness you are strong. In our weakness you are able to make us the kind of people that can say, God, by your grace, we are part of this last day's holy generation. And in doing so, God, we give our lives to the same thing that the Father desires, that his Son would become preeminent over all things. And we give thanks for that. That's our heart's our desire and it's our life ambition. And we thank you for gracing us to be able to join in this. In Jesus' name, amen. My prayers for you are that you join in, that you give your life to this thing, that this will not be just a sermon, that you just not hear this one time and say, let me add this to my repertoire of things that I know. Let this be your whole life. God bless you.